following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon text will be coming from the book of John, John 5. Verse 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in a remic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps before me. Jesus said to him, get up take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. Praise the Lord. How we doing? Everybody good? Okay, praise God. Good to see you guys. Um, I want to talk to y'all a little bit um, about a meeting at a pool, all right? And, and it's, in, it's interesting uh, that, a, that a pool is, uh, that this particular meeting at the pool is the topic for our discussion this week. Um, because evangelicals have been wrapped around the axle um, in, in a lot of the popular, popular world, um, working through an issue regarding uh, immigration. Anybody ever heard of the Dreamers Act? DACA, all right? Evangelicals have been going back and forth this particular week uh, because DACA, the Dreamers Act, and if you don't know what DACA is or the Dreamers Act is, it is um, an, a policy, an executive order that was signed several years ago for uh, uh, for children that were that or for or for children that came via illegal immigration. Their parents uh, came into the states illegally, no matter what country you're talking about, and these children came over with their parents. And the Dreamers Act um, basically was drafted 
as a means of saying, hey, we want to we protect the kids. They didn't do anything wrong, and so we're going to put some things in place to say, hey, as long as you're doing these things, as long as you're checking in, as long as you're you know, uh, productive and operating as productive citizens, we're going to try to keep you in place as long as we can until we get policy that officially signs you in and makes you an actual citizen of the country. All right, and so um, that act was repealed this past week. Now, this is not a political discussion. You have to understand that when I bring up matters of politics, I'm always talking about people. I'm not talking about politics. I'm an independent. I don't care about Democrats. I don't care about Republicans. I just kind of vote wherever, wherever God drives me in an election. And that, and that matters at the state level. That matters at the national level. That matters at the local level for me, all right? And, that, and, and, and I just go across, the, run, run the gambit in terms of thinking about who to vote for. So this is not a political issue. This is a people issue. Here's what came out, and here's why it's interesting for this morning. It does not matter what you think about DACA this morning. It does not matter what you think about the Dreamers Act this morning, all right, and how we should go about figuring out what to do with these children, who many of them are now teenagers, and some are even, you know, uh, young adults, and they're uh, doing things in the country, about 800,000 of them collectively total. It does not matter what you think we should do. What matters is how you go about reasoning what we should do. Here's what I mean. All week long, as I was watching this discussion play out, there was really only one thing that was being discussed. And oftentimes, it, or there was one major thing that was being discussed, and oftentimes it wasn't the people. It was the rule of law. It was saying, well, the executive order that was signed was done in a, in, in, a, in a wrong way, and so we should repeal that no matter what, at all costs, because of the rule of law. And I found it interesting that in the process of discussing the rule of law, we weren't discussing the people and figuring out, okay, what do we do with the people, right? Regardless of the rule of law, what do we do with the people? How do we work these things out in a way that will show, show order, that will show uh, an, a, a, a respect for the law, but at, same, at the same time will show a love for the people. How do we work these matters out? And I found, our, I found most of the discussions that I saw being wrapped around the actual rule of law rather than the actual people themselves. This is important. Because this morning you're going to find that there was a similar thing that happened at this pool in John chapter 5, all right? Now, we're going to talk about two things this morning. One is this. We're going to talk about the healing of an in, uh, invalid man and the hope of God. And the second thing we're going to talk about is the law of the land and the love of God. All right? The healing of an invalid man and the hope of God and the law of the land and the love of God. Are you tracking with that so far? All right, so let's look at it. Let's look at first verse 1. After there was, uh, this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there, was a, in, that, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Here's one thing that you notice if you have an ESV or a new contemporary version of the Bible. You notice that it skips from verse 3 to verse 5. Anybody, anybody see that in their Bibles? Show of hands. Anybody in the room see that? Okay. Skips from verse 3 to verse 5. 
Verse 4 actually gives, them a, gives you a clear description of why everyone was in this pool, but most, most modern manuscripts do not include that verse, or most ancient manuscripts do not include that verse, and so they don't think that it was an actual verse. They think that it was more of a parenthetical or like an insertion, a commentary uh, comment that a scribe wrote in, which is why you may see it in the King James Version, but all the newer versions of the Bible that use ancient, older manuscripts, you don't see it, right? Because they thought it was a commentary ad. And so what they added was basically an explanation for why everyone was at the pool. And that explanation is about to be expounded on anyway, so it really didn't need to be added. But here's why everybody was gathered at the pool, particularly these individuals that we are calling invalids. And invalids are basically people with some sort of disability, blindness, paralysis, deafness, some sort of disability that has disrupted their way of life in some form or some fashion. And so what we see in this text is that these people are gathering at this pool because it was said in the ancient days that every so often, every, and the frequency wasn't defined, but every once in a while, an angel of God would pass through these pools and disturb the waters. And when, the, and when the angel of God passed through the pool and disturbed the waters, those that were in the pool, the first that got in the pool, were healed of their disability. Blind men seeing, lame, paralyzed men walking, they were healed. And so you see in this text a multitude, right, a multitude, a number of people that are gathered at this pool looking for healing. And amongst these people is one man, verse 5, look at it. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Thirty-eight years. That's a long time. And it seems like not only is it a long time, but this particular gentleman has a condition that maybe exceeds all the other folks that are gathered. You say, why so? Well, because he's been trying to get to the pool for a number of years, and he can't get there. In other words, amongst the invalids that are gathered, the, 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 the brothers and sisters who are disabled and struggling in their life, this particular individual can't get ahead of all the others. And so he might be the most invalid amongst the invalid. 38 years this man has struggled with this condition. 38 years he's had the battle. 38 years he's been in search of some form of relief. You know, you notice that oftentimes the most, the people in most need, rather, of help are the people that seem least capable of either finding it or receiving it. Here's this man, 38 years in this condition, amongst a, amongst a multitude of other people that are struggling, and other people are getting to the pool where this healing takes place ahead of this man. He can't get there. He can't get there. 
And it seems that his condition, certainly, certainly we can reason and we can think that his condition probably is at the top of the ladder of one that needs to be in that pool the next time the angel of God comes and disturbs those waters. And yet he can't get to this pool. What do we hear in the words of this man when he speaks? Let's, 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 let's listen to this man. When Jesus, verse 6, saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. What do we hear in the words of this man? Jesus is familiar with this man's condition even before he acts. He says that he noticed that the man's been there for a long time. He understands this man. He knows this man. He knows this man's heart. Remember, we've talked about this all throughout John. We, this Jesus is familiar with this man's condition both outwardly and inwardly before he ever asks the question, do you want to be healed? But what's in the words of this invalid man? What's in the words of this man that is struggling in his body? There's two things, at least, that I see. One is helplessness. The other is hopelessness. When I read these words, I hear helplessness in the voice of this man, in the words of this man, and I hear hopelessness in the words of this man, in the voice of this man. Helpless because, number one, he has no one to get him to this pool, this source of relief, this source of healing, this, this place that for him represents the end to his biggest problems. He has no one to get him there. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Helplessness. But also, number two, not just helplessness, but but helplessness in the sense, or rather helplessness in the sense that no one can get him to the pool, but also helplessness in the sense that he himself can't get there. Even with his best effort through the weakness of his body, he is unable to get himself there. He says, while I am going, another steps down before me. There is no one who can assist him, and there is nothing in him that can assist himself. This leads to the second emotion that is very understandable to experience after 38 years of weakness in the body. Maybe you've even experienced it in your own life, hopelessness. Hopelessness results when a condition that feels and appears helpless seems to have no logical ending in sight. Anybody ever felt that way? Not only are you helpless, but you're helpless without an end. Not only are you helpless, but you're helpless without light at the end of the tunnel. You don't seem like, it doesn't seem like your condition of helplessness has any relief ahead. This man has been in this condition for 38 years. I'm sure he's seen many days at this pool. And day after day, he has no one there to assist him. And day after day, he sees plenty of people go to that pool before him. When Jesus asked this man, does he, want to, does he want to be healed, instead of answering, yes, I want to be healed, he hopelessly responds with the reason as to why it can never happen, right? Do you want to be healed, dear brother? He says, well, 
I have no one to put me into the pool. Was that the question? Was the question, do you, do you have someone to put you in the pool? Was the question, when he, when he responds in, in, in a, with a second reason, I am going, uh, while I'm going down, another, another one steps down before me, was the question, are you getting, do you, can you get to the pool quick enough? The question was neither. The question was, do you want to be healed? But this is the toll that hopelessness takes on a man that's been battered and beaten with helplessness. Is that even when, when, when solutions are being offered, he responds back to those solutions with what? More reasons why they can never come to pass. More reasons why this can never happen for me. Hopelessness, anybody ever felt it? You don't have to raise your hand, but I know there's some people that's feeling it. I know there's some people that's felt it because one of the things that we see in this country is that hopelessness is on the rise. Two years ago, two Princeton University professors did a study. November 2015 was when this study was released, roughly. And what they found is that mortality rates, mortality, in other words, death rates, um, even though they were on a slow down, uh, slow descent in most categories, they were on an uptick over the last 15 years, dating back from 2000 to 2015, over a 15-year period, they were on an uptick in middle-aged white Americans. Now, they weren't on an uptick based on your usual suspects, heart disease, cancer, disabilities of some sort. They were on an uptick for different reasons. One, suicide. Two, drug, drug overdose. Three, alcohol poisoning. These three things in particular were driving the mortality rate up in unusual ways. And the professor, one of the professors, um, categorized this phenomena, this, this, this idea in this way. She said, I'm quoting her, or quoting an article from Psychology Today. It says, people are increasingly taking their own lives or living with reckless disregard for their health and safety, such that they are more likely to die prematurely. Further, and almost as troubling, the paper also documented higher rates of other maladies short of death, declines in health, declines in mental health, declines in the ability to conduct activities of daily living. And Professor Case, this is one of the professors, summarized the results for CNN by saying, more despair and worse health. That's the results. Overall, Professor Ellen Mira, Mira observed the study illustrates the sad reality that what we are observing in this country is an epidemic of hopelessness, end quote. Did you hear that? In this country, one of the wealthiest in the world, we are experiencing an epidemic of hopelessness. More and more kids in predominantly minority, poor communities are succumbing to a psychological phenomena that one of my great, 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 great mentors that I love to just listen to teach and share by the name of Dr. Carl Ellis, he calls this psychological phenomena ghetto nihilism. Does anybody know what nihilism is? It's the idea that nothing matters and nothing counts. Why even be bothered with life? 
He calls it ghetto nihilism because it's a particular nihilism. It's not just a nihilism that you associate with all conditions. It's, an, it's a nihilism that you associate with the conditions of the inner city. In other words, hopelessness of schools, poor education, hopelessness of crime, hopelessness of drug, narcotics, invasion into your community, hopelessness of death, a culture of death being surrounded in, hopelessness of lack of income and lack of opportunity, hopelessness of lack of jobs. And eventually that hopelessness kind of just cakes up in a person and makes the heart callous to the point where they stop feeling, they stop caring. You see a young man that, that, that goes, into a, goes into a convenience shop and robs and steals and kills. It's more to that young man most of the time than just simply he's just bad. More to that young man than simply he's just evil and cold. Oftentimes he is hopeless. He's lost light. He can't see any of it. He can't see a possibility where his life might be different than the rest. So he just tosses it up, hands it over to the jail, hands it over to the gun. So on, on the, on the middle-aged wealthy side and on the poor side, you see this epidemic of hopelessness taking over in our country. Hopelessness is a life and death matter, though, which is why it is extremely important that we understand what's happening in this passage when we read it. Jesus asks this invalid man, do you want to be healed? And the man shares his problem. Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? And the man shares his dilemma. Now, it doesn't sound like an answer, but it is an emphatic answer, in fact. Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? And, and, and what this man responds to in layman's terms, what, how he responds is with these words, I can't be healed. Do you want to be healed? I can't be healed. This is beyond me. This is out. This is, this is outside of my realm of opportunity. This is outside of my realm of access. How many times have you told God that? When God says, do you want joy? And you say, well, God, you got to understand, I got these bills, and I got this, and I got that, and I got this. What, is that? what, is, what does that mean? That means... Simply put, that I can't have joy. I got to fix my mic. Y'all give me a second. Keeps pulling at me. It simply means that I can't have joy, right? When God says, when God says, do you want do you want righteousness? Do you want righteousness? You say, well, God, you, you got to understand how hard it is to do this. You got to understand how hard this life is. You got to understand what's going on here. You got to understand why I can't, you know, I can't do this and I can't do that. And you got, man, so much pressure in this world to do, you know, to do the wrong things. And, and, and basically what you're saying is that I can't pursue righteousness. When we give our dilemmas to God, when we give our problems to God, we're basically responding to him that I can't. This can't happen for me. He's looking to his own ability, though, right? See, this is where hopelessness takes root. This struggling man is looking to the wrong places to find 
help and hope. He's looking to his own ability or to the people around him for help, and he is looking ultimately to the pool and the special and miraculous conditions of it that brings him hope. He's looking to the people, he's looking to the pool, but he's not looking to the person that matters. The reality is is that hope and help are, are both right in front of the man. Hope and help are both right in front of the man. Verse 8 says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and once, and at once the man, I'm sorry, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed, and he walked. Nothing demonstrates how whole Jesus' healing is than the fact that a moment that in a moment, a man that was, that was hoping for someone to carry him to a pool is now up and walking, carrying his own mat that he was laying on, requesting that someone carry him to the pool. And notice how merciful God is. Do you want to be healed? Well, God, I got all these problems. Take up your bed and walk. I'm healing you anyway. <laughs> right? How often do you see faith, when we read faith the size of a mustard seed, these are the moments that we should think of. When we hear, when we hear Paul says that when we, when we are faithless, he remains faithful, these are the moments that we should think of. There are times where your faith is weak and God operates in spite of you. God moves in spite of you. You want to be healed? I can't be healed. You're healed. Come on, let's go. At the end of the day, when it comes to who is ultimately helping, we should turn our attention to Jesus. Jesus is our help and a very very present help in the time of need, as we just read in Psalms. He is our help when it appears that we have no Help. Psalms 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Does it come from the pool? Does it come from, does it come from the people? Does it come from the friends? Does it come from the right condition? Does it come from the right job? Does it come with the right money? Does it come from the right money? Does it come with the right house? Does it come from the right house? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So you turn to Jesus when you're trying to see where my help comes from, but you turn to Jesus when you're trying to understand where your hope comes from. The opening line in, 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 Apostles Paul, in, a, in the Apostle Paul's letter to one of his understudies, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Christ Jesus is your hope. Not your hope of healing, not your hope of comfort, not your hope of not your not not your hope of money and finances, not your hope of the right conditions, not your hope of the right marriage, not your hope of the right parenting. Christ Jesus is where hope begins and ends and flows out of. Direct your attention to him for hope. Direct your attention to him for help. Whose face are you seeking in your helpless state? Whose face are you seeking 
in those hopeless hours. This man was looking past Jesus. He was looking above Jesus, below Jesus, around Jesus, when he should have been looking right at the man. Again, I ask you, have you ever felt completely and totally helpless? No one to call on, no one to help you get past your or get to your place of healing, so to speak, whatever that place is. Have you, have you ever been unable to wheel yourself to that destination, the destination that you believe will bring it, all the while watching others seemingly reach that point day after day, month after month, hour after hour, seeing other people reach the point that you think that's where if I could get there, then hope will be there. Part of the epidemic of helplessness or hopelessness in our culture is that we have convinced, we watch seemingly or we think we're watching people reach the destination that we too or we think we should be reaching. That's part of what cultivates hopelessness. We look on TV, there has a big, there's a show called MTV Cribs, and we turn on MTV Cribs, and we see this wonderful house, we say, man, that's really nice. And, or, we, or we look at people in their wonderful cars, and we say, man, that's really nice. Or we look at people in, in, in their wonderful lives on Facebook, and we say, man, that's really nice. They got really great, really great families, and oh, man, that's perfect. And look at how much they travel, man, that's perfect. And, and, and ultimately what we're doing is that we're conditioning ourselves to believe that if we get those things, and we haven't gotten them yet, but if we got them, we would have hope. And because we have no way of getting them, we're hopeless. What I'm telling you is to stop looking at all the other places and look to the one that the Bible calls, not a means to hope, but literally calls him hope incarnate. He is your hope. Talk about the letter of the law. So, this man gets healed. Take up your mat, walk, go. This man gets healed. And immediately when he gets healed, this is what happens. John says this, now the day of the Sabbath, now that that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse will happen to you. That's what we'll, we'll close on that note So, in just a second. But let me talk to you a little bit about the response from the, from the Jewish rulers. Sabbath keeping was a very serious thing. Keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. It was in commemoration of God, his creative ordinance or his creative work in Genesis chapter 1, where he created, the, created everything heavens, earth, fish, birds, people. And the Bible says on the seventh day he rested. And so God set into motion, as he when he orchestrated his law, he set into motion a rule that we are all to honor him with a day of rest. And so the Jewish rulers, the rabbis, devised a way to make sure that we obey God's rule to Sabbath, to rest. 
They came up with 39 categories of work. 39 that you had to make sure you did in order to be resting. And if you broke one of those 39 categories, or if, you, or if there was an infraction in one of those 39 categories, then you were infraction in violation of the Sabbath rule. Now, here's one of the categories. Carrying, carry, carrying, carrying was a category. On Sabbath, you were not allowed to carry. That's the rule of law. And so, notice what happens to this man. He gets healed. He gets healed. He gets healed. 38 years this man has had this condition. He gets healed. After 38 years, he's been showing up at this pool. And there's, been, there's, there's not been a Jewish leader the first to help him get in there. Are you tracking with this? Nobody's been there to help. He gets healed, and all of a sudden, somebody notices him. Somebody finally notices the man. What do they notice about him? You're carrying a mat. What you doing? I can't believe this. Hey, guys, look at this guy. On the Sabbath of all days, during one of the great feasts in Jerusalem, we don't know what feast this is, by the way, but we know it's a feast, and so Sabbaths, Sabbaths are taking even more serious during feasts. During one of the great feasts, here's this man carrying a mat. What is going on with this man? We need to explain to him how these things go. We need to show, talk to him about the law. Sin can sometimes exist most in the practice of laws we're telling ourselves are helping us avoid sin. Do you hear that? Sin can sometimes exist most in the practice of laws that we are telling ourselves we are practicing in order to avoid it. Constant condemnation instead of compassionate celebration for this man. They've never noticed this man, and all of a sudden they notice him to say, hey, what are you doing carrying that mat, by the way? They give him no celebration. No one says, congratulations, you've been healed. Praise God, somebody healed this man. I've been watching him for 38 years. Nobody stops and says any of that. The only thing they say, well, you know, the rule of law. Do you understand my point? This is where dreamers in DACA comes in. 800,000 people, people that have families, people that have, people that have jobs, people that have lives, the only lives that they know are the lives here. Now, what we do, hey, listen, I'm all on, listen, I'm all on board. We need to figure it out, sort it out, figure out what's the right way to handle this. But you know what's not the right way to handle this? Is to say, well, the rule of law, no. That's not the law of love. To operate with, with such callousness in the face of real people with real needs, with real concerns, with real cares, with real fears, with real worries. Here's a man that literally was on his back 30 minutes ago. 
And he had been on his back for 30 years, 38 years. And the only thing we can muster up is condemnation because now he's not on his back, he's on his feet. And by God, he actually wants to carry his mat, a mat that he probably hasn't ever carried without great struggle and consternation. The letter of the law is far more important to the comfortable than it is to the afflicted. The grace and love and mercy and goodness that the law is intended to point to is far more important to the afflicted than it is the comfortable. The comfortable could care less. This is like, well, you know, the law says it's just like this. We're not supposed to carry anything, so why are you, why are you carrying your mat? But the afflicted are searching for the grace that's in the law. What was, this, what was the law intended to inspire? And the answer is, for the Sabbath, the law was intended to inspire rest. Do you know a more restful day this man had than the day Jesus said, take up your bed and walk? How many days has he been resting? He's been, he's been laying on his back for 38 years. How much rest does this man need? And the only concern that you have is the fact that he's carrying something? If you've never been in a situation of an invalid, you've never seen a reason for justice to reach past the technicalities of the law. If you've never been in the condition of an invalid, you've never had a need for compassion and righteousness to extend beyond the letters of the law. The safer your life has been, the more you can fiddle around and bicker and argue about the rule and the letter of law than actually thinking about what the law was intended to inspire in the first place. One of the most difficult things to process in pursuit of righteousness and justice and obedience is understanding the reason for the law. Law does a great job of pointing out evil, but oftentimes for us, because of our own sin-filled hearts, it does not do a great job of inspiring good. Law does a great job of punishing hatred, but it does a shallow job for us because of our sinful hearts in igniting love. And it is for this reason that sometimes our zeal for upholding the law can push out plain opportunities to love people. We use the law to build up more and more walls and obstructions. And we do that in the name of protecting the law. But the law wasn't intended to protect itself. The law was intended to protect the people. Who's being protected by telling a man to put out his mat after 38 years? The very fact that they sit back in their comfort and discuss the finer points of the law and whether or not goodness and mercy should be withheld is proof of how much they ignore the goodness and mercy and, and privilege that they are significant recipients of by God's grace. Let me say this. Two things about the Sabbath was missed on this day. That not only was it intended to provide rest to us, or not only was it intended to provide rest to us, but for everyone, including the invalids. But that Jesus also, in healing this man, was providing rest to him. 
Jesus was giving him rest. But then the second thing is that the man carrying the mat, and I mentioned this, was more rested this day than he had ever been his entire life. And both of those things were missed as they bickered over the letter. Jesus says a very important thing to this man, his last words to him. He says this, verse 14, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, and my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus says, sin no more in order that nothing worse happens to you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, folks. Jesus provides our help. He provides our hope. But the help and the hope that he provides is supposed to extend beyond this world. Jesus was not interested in simply taking care of this man's physical condition. He was trying to point him and make him, or he was trying to get him healthy for eternity. Does that make sense? Paul says that, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the hope that we enjoy is only for this life, then we of most are to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus does all the things that you think he should do in this life, he fixes all your problems, and yet you don't have faith in him, saving faith, so that when you close your eyes for the final time, you see him then we are most pitied. The hope that God provides is not simply for this life alone. You may not ever see the healing that this man saw in your body. You might not ever see the money that you think you should receive in order to find joy. But folks, I'm telling you, that's not where you place it. You don't place your hope there. The reason you place your hope in Christ is not only because he can bring joy even in the midst of lack in this life, but because he will eternally feel that lack and that void and that void that exists in you now. That's why you place your hope in him. He calls the man out, right? Sin no more. He says, repent, turn from this old life so that the hope that you find doesn't simply last for another 38 years on this earth, but the hope that you find lasts for eternity. Folks, that's what I'm pointing, pointing us to. That's what I'm pointing myself to, encouraging my own soul as I share it with you. I want to, I want to look beyond my condition here. My condition here will fluctuate. Yours will too. There'll be good days and bad days. But our hope is steadfast, not because it's based on what our fluctuation, based on the fluctuations here. Our hope is steadfast because of the Christ that gives us eternity. And so we go out. We go out in the law of love, right? Sharing our hope. Sharing, sharing this present help in a time of need. We go out telling people about this Savior. We go out sharing it in a manner that demonstrates the same grace and the same spirit of the law in which he loved us with. Not wrapping ourselves over useless axles, but actually looking to figure out ways in which we can love people well. 
so let us go. Let us go. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and thank you. Move, Lord God. Move, Lord God. Make your name known in us, Lord. May we take your message of love, your, your law of love, Lord God. The law of love that Paul declares in Romans chapter 12. Your commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Let us go in the fulfillment of the law and love well, God. And Father, let us, in the midst of that, as we face our various highs and lows and Lord God, disabilities, both physical, spiritual, psychological, struggles. Father, let us rest in the hope and help that we've been given in you. Not looking around you to other things to find hope and help, but looking to you and at you for hope and help. We love you, we thank you, and give you all the praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.